With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is former Michigan State politician Bill Ballinger, who now runs the Ballinger Report, analyzing and forecasting upcoming races in that key state. Remember, we love talking about your questions, so write into politicsforum at gmail.com or send a tweet to Adpliticon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our sponsors, Blinkist and the Jordan Harbinger Show in the notes. We thank you for supporting them. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, uh, James, James Carville, who is over in Ireland, uh, but uh, is still well-tuned into what's going on uh, <laughs> here and elsewhere. Um, hey, James, Donald Trump, in one of his last judicial selections, chose... Uh, Aileen Cannon, a movement conservative, is a Florida district court. After the election, she was confirmed by the then Republican Senate. Judge Cannon showed her appreciation this week in a decision much more about politics and the rule of law. She's going to appoint a special master to review the documents, some highly classified, others missing, that Trump illicitly took from the White House uh, and kept at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, that was the FBI uh, went and got them several weeks ago. Further injecting herself in the investigation, uh, she told prosecutors, uh, you know, hold off proceeding for now until we resolve all of this. You know, she didn't know what she was talking about. Uh, David Ignatius of the Washington Post, who understands this stuff a lot, says she clearly has no idea what this information is. Paul Weisenzweig, a top official in the George, H. W., George W. Bush administration, uh, told the New York Times this was unprecedented and untenable. And Duke Law Professor Samuel uh, Buell called it laughably bad. We found out from the Washington Post that there was in that in those documents were the nuclear uh, the nuclear secrets, I guess, uh, that we knew uh, of, of at least one other nation. That is really, really highly classified stuff. <laughs> and she went on, James. This is what I, I like, though. Uh, Judge Cannon worried about the stigma associated with the FBI going in to recover government pro property and the reputational harm to Trump. <laughs> J Judge, uh, one thing, I'm not a lawyer, but like, I, I can tell you this. When you're caught breaking the law, there usually is a stigma. And as for the <laughs> reputational harm to Donald Trump, get serious, James. Yeah, I, 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 I'm flummoxed. And I, I don't know. This woman's 41 years old. I mean, the savage beating that she's taken, you know, for Andrew Weissman, but even Bill Barr, who's like jumping in and enjoying, he's having more fun than any human being should have now. And this is just further erodes confidence in the judiciary. And this is all part of, I think, of a larger plan to 
to just have where the country has no confidence in anything and then it becomes totally tribal. I, 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 I think she's on to a larger plan. You, you couldn't intentionally write something this stupid. All right. You just couldn't do it. And you could not. I, you know, how many times you hear a first year law student could have done something better than this? So I, 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 I don't know. It's, it's, I, I, I hate to say this, but I, I think they're trying to drive all institutional trust down as fast as they can. Yeah, because what this ruling says is, uh, even if it's only a temporary impediment, is the law that applies to you and me and all of our listeners out there doesn't apply to the man who appointed her to the bench. Now, there can be arguments over what you can and cannot do with a sitting president. There should be no arguments over what you can or can't do with a former president, same as any other citizen. And the, the, the problem, I don't know if the Justice Department is going to appeal this awful ruling or not. Uh, if it does, it goes to uh, the 11th Circuit. Six of those 11 judges were appointed by Trump. Uh, maybe uh, there's one who calls it like it should be called there, but that's a risk. Uh, I'm, I'm told by some other people this is going to be, as I said a minute ago, an impediment, but probably not a long delay. Yeah, that, that Norm Eisen and uh, Fred Worth have wrote a, wrote a piece, and it seemed to be pretty well informed. You, you might be better off not appealing it. I I I, I don't know. Uh, it, and you know, we, we went through the election, and sixty judges, a lot of them Republican appointed judges, you know, throughout these election suits and. And then, then they just throw the whole thing over the fence with Dobbs, and then they throw it over the fence with this. Yeah. And we just, you know, now if you, anybody goes into federal court, it's who, who appointed the judge. That, yeah. That, and that's not the way it's supposed to work. I don't know where the chief justice is in all of this. To make it even worse, uh, there were a number of former prominent Republicans, a former attorney general, uh, and uh, some other top office holders who tried to file an amicus brief with her on this. She rejected it. That, too, is almost unprecedented. Uh, this was a, a political act by a political judge, uh, and it's, it's uh, as I say, I hope it's only a blip, but, but you, your point about the longer-run damage uh, is troubling. James, anything else on, on your agenda from across the pond? Well, I want to comment on, on a column this morning, New York Times, by Brett Stevens, who who I've met on at least one occasion. Seems like an affable guy. He, he parades around as a smart, thoughtful person. He wrote one of the stupidest things I've ever seen anybody write in American politics, and that is in, in attacking Biden's speech. Totally unjustifiable, but I'm not going to get into that. I'm going to let people like Sidney Blumenthal and Sean Valence deal with his Lincoln scholarship. But but he said that that you got to understand it's not MAGA, it's just Trump. And when Trump goes away, it all goes away. That's just so stupid. It's, it's unbelievable. The problem is, as I've stated numerous times very publicly, really, when you have really stupid people voting in your primaries, you're going to produce really stupid candidates. And when Trump leaves, MAGA is not leaving with him. Kathy Barnett, who, who the, the MAGA Senate candidate that lost in a Republican primary in Pennsylvania, said we were there before he was, and he can only exist if he does what we want him to do. And I don't know why it, it, I have it, it's such a hard thing for people to get. They, they blame 
Republican politicians. If just if just Trump went away, if we would have Everett Dirksen and Mac Mathias back, and we'd all be happy again. No, you're not. The only thing that's going to stop this, unfortunately, is the actual tables. And the problem is is Republican politicians are being driven by Republican voters. I, I can't emphasize that enough to our audience. Uh, you know, I basically agree with you, and I certainly thought that column uh, was was wrong to put it mildly. I mean, look at Arizona, look at Pennsylvania, look at Ohio, uh, look at oh, cool. North Carolina, look at any number oh, of states, and uh, those those are Trump people who aren't going to go away. I do think Illinois. this. Yeah, I I do think this. I think that yes, that that existed. It's there. Uh, it was there before Trump. It'll be there after Trump. Uh, but I think Trump makes it worse. Trump gives them gives some people license uh, that might not have had it before. He aggravates it, and uh, I think it's a combination of of the MAGA crowd. But I think you know if the Republicans had elected, I don't know, you pick somebody else, Ted Cruz. I don't think it would have been nearly as bad. Uh, but that's he, what well, it is. you know, he's not going to be able to run in twenty twenty four and the starting gun. And just wait and see. All right. Just wait and see. Yeah. It, it ain't going to get better. It's going to get worse. And, and yeah. as opposed to one guy holding the torch, they're going to be five trying to grab the torch away. That's going to make them crazy and crazy and crazy. And, and some of these people that they're nominating, even by Trumpian standards, are crazy. So I don't know. I don't think I, I, I think this is almost all voters getting what they demand. And politicians are, are, Republican politicians are, are, don't have much to do with this. It's all being driven from the ground up. Well, Bill Kristol, who, who has been prescient on this for a long, long time, uh, said the other day, the Republican Party, as we have known it, is over. Uh, yes. And, and yes. if you want to. Uh, if you want to try to rebuild something else, you have to do it. But if you think you, as you said a minute ago, if you think you can cling on to this party as the Kevin McCarthy's of the world are doing and say, hey, we can just, you know, make a few tweaks, uh, a few fixes and we'll be fine. Uh, we are in total agreement that that is uh, that's the and, and, and it's this entire idea, you know, Brett Stevens, Ross Duhart, you know, where, oh, yeah, but we, we don't like Trump and he's he's uncouth and uncultured, but look at AOC. Okay, go ahead, look at, compare the two. One, I think, is, is kind of naive and, you know, has a celebrity aura about it. The other one is pure evil. If you don't know the difference between naivete and evil, I can't explain it to you. But but that's 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 their whole brand. Right? You know, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll admit to this, but you got to admit to that. No. Yeah. No, yeah, no, I know. No, no, no. I agree. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
Hey, James, our guest is Bill Ballinger, editor of the Ballinger Report, the number one political report in the key Wolverine state. Uh, Bill, some really important races in Michigan, but overarching, it seems to me now, is abortion. It's complicated. So see if I get this right. With overturning, with the overturning in Roe, the state reverts to its 1931 anti-abortion law. No exceptions except for life for the mother. An appeals court staged enforcement of that law, and pro-choice Democrats collected far more than necessary signatures to put an abortion rights on the November ballot. Republicans have tried to block that, but the odds are the state Supreme Court with a Democratic majority will likely put it back on the ballot. That's long-winded, but is that basically right? You've got it right, Al. Well, all right, that because that's important. That'll be a big issue. In the governor's race, then, if abortion rights is on the ballot, as you think it will be, and you know more than anybody, and the Republican candidate, Tudor Dixon, is anti-abortion, I believe she said with no exceptions, I'd love to be in Governor Whitmer's shoes. Tudor Dixon has said the life of the mother would be an exception, but not necessarily the health of the mother. But she is pretty far out on the right extreme on that issue. And polling in Michigan shows that the pro-choice side on abortion has heavy majority support, probably two-thirds. So I think uh, Tudor Dixon is climbing uphill on the major issue of the day. And I think Whitmer is trying to use that issue to carry her back to a second term in the governor's residence. And it's likely, if it's on the ballot, not only is it popular, but it's likely to bring out voters, even some low propensity, you know, younger women uh, who might not otherwise vote. Correct. Uh, there is that speculation. Uh, a lot of people say, well, it may galvanize some people on the pro-life side as well. But I think on balance, if you've got public opinion as uh, prominent as it is, two-thirds majority in favor of a pro-choice position, and uh, you've got people on that side very upset with the Roe v. Wade decision by the U.S. Supreme Court and motivated to try to make sure Michigan gets back to where we were before the Roe v. Wade decision by the Supreme Court, then I think that spells potential trouble for Republicans up and down the ticket, particularly Tudor Dixon running for governor. I know there's some reservations among some people in Michigan, but a number of national Democrats talk about Governor Whitmer, if Joe Biden shouldn't run, as a potential national candidate. If she wins big, uh, there's going to be talk about uh, about Gretchen Whitmer beyond Lansing. There will be. There has been already. Uh, I would wait until we see what the election result really is and how, uh, for that matter, various uh, Democratic candidates do in other states as well. Uh, My reservations about uh, Governor Whitmer running for president are that she's not quite ready at this point for what I would call prime time at the national level. But that's a long way down the road. James Carville. So, of course, as you can imagine, I I think MAGA's people that constitute MAGA are, 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 I think they're crazy. All right, just be out in front. However, from a distance, it seems like the Michigan MAGA people might be among the craziest in the country. What, (laughs) what, what, What caused this? I mean, this is Gerald Ford and George Romney and everything. 
you know, seemed like kind of standard issue. Republicans, I spoke to the Chamber of Commerce on Mackinac Island at that big, you know, great hotel they have there. Now it seemed like, you know, pretty standard issue. Republicans, you know, kind of pro-business community or something. And now that they're kidnapping the governor and shit. What, what happened there? There has always been a right-wing fringe element in Michigan. I mean, even going back to, let's say, the 1970s, remember the Michigan militia you heard about uh, way back 45 years ago? Uh, And it obviously came to the fore with a vengeance in the last couple of years. Uh, You had uh, people storming the Capitol, uh, not doing any necessary damage, but intimidating, threatening. You had the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer. And so, yes, I think the face of uh, Michigan right-wing extremism is probably more pronounced than it is in almost any other state in the country. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, influence of the DeVos family on Republican Michigan politics? And I think it's a kind of unique situation. The DeVos family influence has been huge uh, monetarily and campaign cash every cycle. Uh, They put more money into candidacies and ballot proposals over time than any other single faction that you could name in the entire uh, fundraising electorate. Uh, But that actually has kind of opened up a cleavage in the Republican Party because these people who are, as you might say, extreme on the right, and people who, for that matter, are simple, blue-collar, lower-income, working families uh, that now identify Republican, mainly because of the rise of Donald Trump, they're disenchanted with what they consider to be the establishment in Michigan, uh, the uh, kind of mainstream traditional conservatives that you just alluded to. And that would include the DeVos family as the financial arm uh, to a great extent of that establishment faction of the party. So there is a split, a cleavage within the Republican Party between the Trump uh, slash uh, right wing uh, slash Michigan militia type uh elements of the Republican Party and the so-called establishment, conservative, DeVos uh, section of the party. So, so before I turn over to Al, the, the other race besides governor, I think of Secretary of State race, AG, State Supreme Court, legislative races. Tell us, because Al's very big on this, and I, I agree with him, that there are a lot of these other races other than the headline races that are really important. You're right. Uh, We have all four of our so-called constitutional officers on the ballot this fall. Governor, Lieutenant Governor, Attorney General, Secretary of State. Lieutenant Governor runs in tandem with the governor, just like president and vice president at the federal level. But the other two officers are independently elected, Attorney General and Secretary of State. They are now held by incumbent Democrat Dana Nessel and Jocelyn Benson, respectively, They are being challenged by two Republican nominees who come out of that more conservative, uh, grassroots, Trump, uh, right-wing element of the party. They won the nomination at the state party convention recently, 
Uh, those nominations are determined in state party convention, kind of like Virginia does for governor and other offices, not in a primary. So the establishment uh, basically lost out. The, the people who are like Betsy DeVos, Ron Weiser, the state Republican chairman, the traditional Republican element of the party, they got whacked by the more conservative element wing of the party at the state convention. And both Christina Caramo, the Republican nominee for Secretary of State, and Matt DiPerno, the Republican nominee for Attorney General, are viewed as little known and two conservative candidates running against two entrenched Democrats. And they are running well behind in the polls as well. So we'll find out what happens in November. Uh, if there is a red wave, which now it seems to be receding into the sunset, uh, maybe DiPerno and Caramo will do better than people think. I don't think there's going to be a red wave in Michigan. I don't think it's necessarily going to be a blue wave, but it's certainly not going to be advantageous to the Republicans, I don't think, in Michigan in this off-presidential year, as everybody thought it would be just a few months ago. Albert? Uh, James mentioned the state Supreme Court. We have learned in the last several cycles the import of state Supreme Courts, including in Michigan. Uh, it makes a huge difference on all sorts of uh, matters right now, whether abortion will go on the ballot or not. As I understand, you have a four-three Democratic majority. You have one Democrat and one Republican up. What's the outlook for how that's going to turn out, Bill? I'd say the two incumbents are favored. Uh, they are the same two incumbents who ran uh, eight years ago uh, for a full eight-year term. There is a Democrat, Richard Bernstein, and a Republican, Brian Zara. Uh, they have to be considered the favorites, I think, over the two challengers. Let me explain in Michigan, we got a really weird system where uh, the candidates for the Supreme Court are picked by the parties, but then they run on the ballot in November as nonpartisan. But they also have beneath their name on the ballot, if they're incumbents, the incumbency designation, which is worth its weight in uh, political gold. If you can imagine, Brian Zara, Richard Bernstein will have under their names justices of the Supreme Court. And that's a big advantage in an election. That gives an edge to the incumbent. A lot of people go in, don't even vote for the Supreme Court or other judgeships, which are near the bottom of the ballot. And when they do, uh, they look at the incumbent and the designation that this is the incumbent. And if they haven't heard anything bad about them, they say, what the heck? Let's just go with the incumbent. So I think both Zara and Bernstein are favored to win. And that will keep the court exactly as it is right now four Democrats and three Republicans. And, and, and what's the significance of that, Bill, for the court remaining 4-3 Democratic? Well, there is a lot of litigation that's going to come up, as you can imagine, in the next few years. It could be, for instance, on abortion, even though there are decisions that the current Supreme Court may make even now, between now and November, or let's say before the end of the year, there will be other decisions involving abortion going on. And there will be decisions that have to be made on things like voting rights and term limits, uh, which is also on the ballot in November. So, I mean, the fact that the Democrats finally got control of the court for really the first time in over two decades in 2020 as a result of that election 
is a huge factor. Republicans control the Supreme Court either 4-3 or 5-2 for all but a few months of the last 22 years. And then they lost it in 2020 to the Democrats, and I think that's very significant. Yeah, it sure is. One more before I turn it back to James. You have several congressional races, two or three. Uh, there's that Trump, uh, uh, I think, crazy guy who uh, won in Grand Rapids. I think that makes the Democrats the favorite. And an increasingly influential member of Congress, Alyssa Slotkin, is in a tough race in a redrawn district. Can you comment on those or others? Yeah, absolutely. Right now, Michigan has 14 members of the U.S. House. We're going to lose a seat because of the census and reapportionment. We're going to be down to 13. And I think there are four seats that are really in play. The one you mentioned, which is the third district in West Michigan, also the eighth district. Uh, then there's the 10th and the 13th. Uh, those are districts down in more either mid-Michigan or the metro Detroit area. And I would say uh, that the final result in November might be as much as 9-4 for one party or the other. Probably it's going to be 8-5 or 7-6 uh, for one party or the other. Probably I would give an edge to the Democrats winning, uh, let's say, two out of those four, three out of those four, and emerging with maybe an 8-5 edge in the delegation, which is a big pickup because right now the delegation is split 7-7. So all this talk about the Republicans regaining control of Congress, of the U.S. House, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican House leader in Washington, was in Detroit just last week saying the road to a Republican majority in the U.S. House runs through Michigan. You got to win these seats, Republicans. You got to make sure that the split in the delegation is at least 7-6 and hopefully 8-5 or 9-4. If not, uh, Republicans are going to have to make up the difference somewhere else in the country. James Carville. Uh, uh, is Detroit still a basket case or is it doing better? What's the current state of the city of Detroit? Because it, it just hadn't kept up as much as I should. If you talk to the mayor, Mike Duggan, who, even though it's a nonpartisan office, is a real card-carrying Democrat, he'll tell you things are really turning around. And there's been evidence over time under his tenure uh, that downtown Detroit is flourishing uh, better than it has in a long time. The real question is the neighborhoods right. and uh, what's happening in the outlying areas of Detroit. And the fact is that Detroit continues to lose population. Uh, it's down to, I think, the 23rd biggest state in the country, right? Uh, city in the country right now. Whereas, you know, when I was growing up, it was like number five or number seven. Right. Right. And people are leaving Detroit, and Detroit is only about 6% of the state electorate now. 6%. At one time, it was 30%. So it right. shows you how its uh, importance in Michigan has diminished over time. Wow. So we were talking earlier uh, about state parties, and I saw my friend Senator McMorrow, and she was very high on the Michigan Democratic Party. Uh, but I know you're not a partisan, and you cover things, but is the Democratic State Party in Michigan, do they come across as competent or, or useful? I think 
I think the Democrats this year uh, are feeling surprisingly optimistic about how they're going to do in November. First of all, there are reapportioned districts in Michigan, not only for the U.S. House, but for the state Senate and the state House through an independent redistricting commission, which put together the new maps this time for the first time in Michigan history. And the Democrats feel, boy, we've got a much better shot at getting a majority in the state House and the state Senate with these new maps than we ever had the last 20 years under maps that were drawn by Republicans in the legislature and signed into law by Republican governors. So I think that Democrats are feeling optimistic. They are really united, I would say, in Michigan to a far greater extent than the Republicans are. The Republicans have this split in the party that I described earlier. Democrats don't seem to have that at all. The state party chairman, uh, Barnes, is uh, reticent. She doesn't talk much. You don't hear from her. You hear more from the former Democratic state chairman, Mark Brewer, who's still very active as a litigator for the Democratic Party on all sorts of issues around the state and does very well. So, Fortran, Al, do you see uh, Governor Blanchard? He was a good friend of mine. I haven't seen him in a while. Is he still active there or what? He's active uh, to the extent that he'll come out at key junctures and endorse uh, opponents uh, for certain races. And he tries to keep his hand in quite a bit. I don't think he's quite as active in his party right. and, and trying to influence election outcomes as, let's say, former Republican Governor John Engler, who defeated right. Blanchard in 1990. Engler is still very, very prominent in the Republican Party and as a spokesperson uh, in various uh, contested races around the state in the general election. Is Governor England land war with the insurgent faction, the, the MAGA faction, or the kind of... No, uh, strangely enough, when, when John Engler ran for governor in 1990, he kind of came out of what you would call the more conservative faction in the party, as opposed to the establishment moderate Bill Milliken, George Romney, a part of the party. But over the years, the way things have gone for the Republican Party, John Engler is now viewed as the establishment. He is in with the, you know, DeVos faction and the uh, Ron Weiser state chairman faction and the establishment conservative Republicans. I don't think he would like to hear people characterize him that way. But clearly, I think the grassroots tends to look at him a little bit more that way, although he does a pretty good job of keeping his feet in both camps over time. Yeah. Okay, Al. Um, uh, Bill, I have to tell you that James and I have a old man political crush on Mallory McMurrow. Uh, and if I were if I were if politicians were futures, uh, I'd buy McMurrow, I think. <laughs> Well, if the Democrats uh, recapture control of the Senate, she may be the next majority leader. No question about that. And even if they don't, she may be at least the minority leader. And guess who the former minority leader of the state Senate was? Gretchen Whitmer. And look where she is now. Okay, James, we just got to be around when she gets there, That's right? right? Uh, uh, just, uh, Bill, I'm, I've just thought of something, I'll, and then I'll let you go. You've been so generous with your time. Will the DeVosses throw in money on the anti-abortion side, if it's on the ballot? 
it's unclear how much money they will put into that. Um, they claim that they're going to spend $30 million on various races uh, between now and November, and they've already spent some of it. Some of it will probably go to Tudor Dixon. But uh, whether they really put a lot of money behind uh, defeating the abortion rights proposal on the ballot remains to be seen. Bill Ballinger, you have been a great guest. Michigan is such a fascinating state politically, and uh, we're going to keep watching it, and we'll stay in touch with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great interview. Very, very, very insightful, very knowledgeable. My pleasure, Al and James. My pleasure. All right, James, here are the questions from... Our, our great listeners, I really mean that. They are such good questions. It's so hard to choose uh, the six or seven that we're going to use this week. So keep them coming because we may use it next week. Alex in Oak Island, North Carolina says, let's imagine for a moment the Republican Party captures control. I hate to read this question, James, <laughs> oh, uh, of all three branches of government by 2024 and enact laws to maintain it. Based on this scenario, what sort of horrific dystopian novel would you write about this future of absolute unchecked GOP control of, of, of us? What are the plot lines? What would life be like for Americans? Well, I, you, you spend a lot of time worrying about this. I do, too. But you know government a little bit better than I do. So why don't, why don't you give our friend in North Carolina what you think would happen? Well, you can start with George Orwell, can't you? Uh, and uh, then if you want to look for a model... Uh, I would start off by looking at Victor Orban and Hungary. And, Maybe uh, Margaret Atwood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that might be good, too. Or the dangers of it and what happens. Uh, you know, our favorite Ann Applebaum uh, with uh, right. her book uh, on liberal democracy. So, uh, Alex, it's a, it's a scary thought. You're absolutely right. Alex, I don't mean to, to uh, be disrespectful, but the thought is so scary, I don't want to think about it too much. <laughs> this is from Michael in Miami. It's to me, and I love this question. How do you think Bill Buckley and Robert Novak would have reacted to Donald Trump's presidency and post-presidency? Would they have been like George Will and Bill Crystal, or would they have embraced him? Uh, I don't have any doubt that Buckley would have been in the Will Crystal camp. He didn't like people who were uncouth, among other things. Novak would be an issue. Bob would have known how bad Trump was, but Bob uh, always rallied behind people who were attacked by people he didn't like. So I think Novak would have straddled a little bit. But in the end, I hope, I hope, since he was my dear friend, he would have come down against evil. Well, I didn't know Bob as well as you did. I knew him pretty well. I, 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 I hope I'm wrong. No way to find out. But I think he would have probably hung in there with him. In terms of Buckley, yeah, he, he didn't like the John Birch Society and, and did get rid of him. But he was friendly with a lot of segregationist ideas. So I'm, I'm, I, I think you're right. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, you know, it's a different yeah, time, yeah, I, different, different time, different, different era. It is, it is and it he, was he different times, and he certainly yeah. did, you know, and I think at, toward the end of his life, he, he said he regretted it, and that that's the most important thing. He also regretted the Iraq. He also was really hard on the Iraq war, so he wasn't totally, uh, totally predicted. Well, that's one thing Novak was yeah. never for that war. Yeah. He, yeah. You, you know, he, he wasn't I mean, for the first. He wasn't for the first Iraq war, which I was for. Yeah. The George H.W. Bush uh, uh, right. war. 
Kate in West Seattle, Washington. She says she's a big fan of the show, and thank you for introducing me to Real Paper. With a baby and a dog, I like a sustainable product so I can feel better <laughs> about going through roll after roll of paper towels. Kate, we love you. Your question is, with a mountain of documents found in the Florida Beach house basement, has anyone checked the golf course in New Jersey? And how routinely do they inventory the good silver at the White House? James, I love Kate. That's a great question. I, I, I do, and she's a very environmentally conscious person. Again, I kind of same question, and if if some of our listeners can give me an answer, or uh, any any just a, a ten percent answer, what is the benign explanation for this? What is the thing where you say, "Well, look, it, 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 I don't, I can't get it. I can't think of anything." And I and I and I've asked smart people this: give me a a, a, a benign or or non. Catastrophic. I tell you, don't, I don't want to say a benign explanation. Give me a non-catastrophic explanation for having nuclear secrets. You, you, if you stop and you think how much effort and time the government comes in to developing secrets and to protecting secrets, we spend tens of billions of dollars a year on it, hundreds of billions, right? And there's so many rules and details, and, you know, I'm sure some people could say that it's overdone, but governments take their secrets pretty damn seriously. And just somebody, please give me a non-catastrophic explanation for this, because no one's been able to do it, and I've asked really smart people. The answer is they can't, James, because there I, is I, none. I don't think, I don't, I I don't think, think going to— Going to Kate's point, uh, I tell you what gives me comfort about about uh, him not hiding stuff elsewhere. I think there's an inside um, source, mole, whatever you want to, that's giving uh, information out. And I think if he was putting it up at the New Jersey Country Club or any of his other hideaways, uh, my guess is someone's going to know about it. I agree with Carl Rove. It's just the Secret Service. Yeah. But he has federal law enforcement surrounding him. And I mean, these guys, are, these people are, are, are trained, man. They look at these boxes and stuff strewn all over the place. Uh, I, I mean, they're sworn up over the law. I, I think that's the, I think that's the most likely answer to the whole thing. We're in a roll with the Pacific Northwest today right. because Kyle in Portland, Oregon, says some conservative pundit will sarcastically say. Quote, semi-fascist, I thought Biden was supposed to be a unity president, end quote. And Chuck no, Todd and the rest no, of the panel just keeps moving on like that wasn't a ludicrous statement. Then no. Kyle asked, should the president be softening his language about fascism uh, to be more unifying? And why should an American president be trying to find common ground between people undermining our elections and the rest of America? Kyle, you got several questions there. Uh, I think James and I are in agreement that it was kind of, you know, it, it wasn't productive to, to use the term fascist because a lot of people don't know what it is. Uh, right. They're crazy, they're radical, they're extremists. And, uh, boy, no president has reached out as much to try to find common ground. And most of the time, uh, they just slapped his hand. I, I, I probably disagree somewhat. I mean, first of all, there are semi-fascists. Maybe more. What, what is storming the Capitol? Okay, what, what are fake electors? All right, what is trying to stop people from voting? But, okay, if that... If if that's not semi-fascism, then tell me what semi-fascism is. I mean, if you remember, Hitler never even got over 33% or 32% when 
when they seize power. I'm, I, I like the word extremist a lot better because people understand it and it's what they think. And I, 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 th- I think sometimes, I'm not saying it's the equivalent of, of this identity left language selling this, but I do think extremism would have been a better word, although fascist, semi-fascist is 100% accurate. Yeah. That's what they uh, are. You yeah. know. But semi-fascist is extremism. Steve in Ash County, North Carolina, says, I love your show and believe the two of you have a good read on the current state of things. We'll find out uh, in you. November, won't we? <laughs> Plus, you have off-the-hook guest. I think that means great guest, and boy, do we ever. Steve Kotkin was fabulous last week. He sure I, was. He said, my question is for Mr. Carville. He shows respect. Right, mister, thank you. Who he reveres, reveres. Please tell your wife about that. Uh, aren't you being a bit tough on the MAGA crowd by calling them ignorant and stupid? You've stated many times that the coastal elite are guilty of looking down their noses at flyover states. Aren't right. you, and this is someone who reveres you, aren't right. you essentially doing the same thing with your comments? Uh, my, my comment is, it, it's just true. And I, of course, I have real respect. I'm working on a piece of what it means to be a red state Democrat. And there, there, there are plenty of people that live in the red state that are not MAGA. But in this period, he's done everything he could to reach out to him. He's done everything he could. And that's just not who they are. And so I don't, it, you know, when you delay, 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 and you finally tell the truth, I, 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 I think what Biden did was, was, was correct. I think these people are semi-fascists. I think they're detrimental to the country. They have been, and they're going to continue to be. And if if they're not called out, then why be there? So, I mean, I understand exactly where you're coming from. Uh, he was very clear. If you read his remarks, you know, to say that's not everybody, and he was very careful to, to sort of call, distinguish MAGA Republicans from other Republicans. So... And, you know, the speech, it, it became, it, it got ahead of steam, and it got characterized as to be something that it was not. I, I, th- I thought that the President Biden spoke the truth. Again, I, I would have preferred the word extremist to fascist because it's it's a more accommodating word, and people understand what you're talking about. I mean, half the, half the people in Manga World never heard of fascism. They, were, they, 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 they couldn't tell you who Mussolini was. It, it gave them 100 years. I mean, you, you got to realize, these are people that really make a choice to be stupid. They really make a choice. And if somebody chooses to be stupid, there's nothing you can do about it. Carol in Rockville, Maryland. Carol also was in Egypt, England, Iowa, and more along the way. So we have a real global traveler uh, who asked, should the period between election and swearing in of a new president be shortened? Historical needs no longer exist and may have contributed to shenanigans after the last election. Your thoughts. Uh, First, Carol, let me say, if it had been um, 24 hours, there would would have been shenanigans uh, or corruption because that's what Trump is. You know, they changed it once. Uh, They they. They changed it after, I think, the first FDR inaugural and moved it from uh, the first week of March to January the 20th. Um, I don't think you should make a major change based on the performance of one corrupt, evil president. Uh, but, I, you know, moving it up, 
you know, a month or, you know, right before, right after Christmas, uh, I think is fine. I, I, I think uh, a, a new administration coming in needs, even if they've campaigned for two years, that transition takes some time. You have to coordinate with other departments. You have to have people ready to go, people to be confirmed. So uh, a couple of weeks maybe, but, but, but I wouldn't go much beyond that. Well, if, if there's anything that, you know, if you know young people in college that are interested in politics, there's one course I would recommend over all others, and that is a course of what they called an LSU back in the 60s, comparative government. All right, it, because in a parliamentary system, if, if you lose that night, you leave 10 Downing Street. There's <laughs> no transition. You, you go to work the next day. All right, our, our system is a little bit different, but they, they, they appoint cabinet members. If the prime minister loses the election, he does not sleep at 10 Downing Street that night. All right, I, and again, I, and, and you're very correct to, to point out that the lag time has been reduced from March to, to, to comparable time in, in January. You, you know, Roosevelt didn't do a thing between the time he was elected and the time he took office. And uh, so it's it, it, it's a good question. There's, there's a lot of things that are broke with this country. The time between election and taking the office is probably not one of them. And a new Congress takes office on January 2nd. Uh, so it, 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 it's a provocative question, but I, just anybody that's interested in politics, if the school that you go to offers a course in comparative government, I'm sure they got a new name for it now to make it sound, you know, more highfalutin, but it, it, it really does open your eyes. And, you know, people say, hey, let's have a democracy. And I, when I teach my kids, oh, hey, good. How are you going to vote? Are we going to have a parliamentary system, constitutional system? What are the rules? How you raise money? Democracy is hard. It's, it's hard to put together. And unfortunately, it's easy to tear apart. Well, and I agree with you. That shouldn't be one of the top 10 priorities for any changes we want. The last right. question comes from Laurel in Manhattan, New York. She said, I wrote to Pennsylvania Democrats on their website six weeks ago offering to do get out the vote in Philadelphia for the midterms. I keep following up. This is discouraging as these Senate gubernatorial seats are totally winnable, but she doesn't hear anything back. How can I shake these guys up? Well, Let's hope some Pennsylvania Democrat is that, listening that, to right, that, James. That, right. Absolutely. And, I, you know. I hear this a lot, and, and one of the things we're going to have is, uh, I think we have Ben Winkler next week, the Wisconsin Party. I would love for somebody to do a deep dive into state Democratic parties ranked, because some of them are really quite good, and some of them are just terrible. Now, I don't know, can't speak to, to your situation in Pennsylvania, but if you don't get satisfaction to party, I would write directly to one of the campaigns, maybe. Uh, you know, because if you really care about it, if the party is clumsy and, and not particularly effective, that that you just got to work around it. Yeah, I, I don't know your particular situation, but uh, I, I buy your tenacity and keep trying. It's that important. Laurel, I think that's good advice. James, this is slightly off topic. I'm I'm getting a little bit worried about the Fetterman campaign. Uh, I mean— I'm worried. I mean, I still think he's going to win. He's running against one of the maybe the worst candidate of the year and Dr. Oz. But he had a stroke uh, for didn't quite tell us the truth about it. Then for three or four months laid low. That's fine. You can recover from strokes. 
But now he's refusing to debate, and the suggestion is because he really can't debate. I, I, I don't think refusing to debate has ever cost anybody an election, or rarely, if ever. But I think in this context, uh, I would hope that um, John Fetterman, who in a normal situation would just mop up the floor with, with that quack doctor, uh, would find some way to reconsider. You, you know, I just have this screaming nightmare. And it's the Cal Cunningham nightmare. Mm-hmm. All right. I, 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 certainly two completely not comparable events. But, you know, it's such an important race. And it's so important that he wins. And, and you know, and you can't. You can't blame Oz for zeroing in on this. Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, by the way, wrote a pretty tough editorial. I don't know if yeah. you saw it. But it was yeah, pretty tough. Saying, you and know, you, you got I, to debate. I, 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 I share your concern. That's what's I'm making me nervous. Uh, Cal Cunningham, by the way, was the North Carolina Senate gate in, in 2020, who really was probably on his way to winning. Uh, and then he got caught in a, in a, a sex scandal uh, and lost by, what, two points. Right. And, and but, the, obviously, it's a different set of circumstances with Federal, right. but it just happened right. a nightmare of, you know, I, I don't know what the value of a Senate seat is, but it's a lot. <laughs> it's oh, very high. Oh, oh, oh. look at uh, uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, yeah. and you can understand. Well, well if you look at, you know, how, how we didn't do very well in the Senate, look at Cal Cunningham. And, you know, we didn't do very well right. in Maine and Iowa and other places. So it's right. not that they came up with a situation that allowed them to have that kind of power and give Manchin credit, man. He And, and you know, they drug her across the finish line, too. Right. Just took a lot, a lot more, yeah, and a lot harder, and didn't get right. quite as much. And uh, you know, Cal Cunningham's lost. You got a it, lot. It, it drives me crazy when I hear you know some people who should know better saying, "Well, that, you know, North Carolina is just a, a red state." Cal Cunningham would have won if he had uh, if he had behaved himself. And uh, North Carolina, twenty eight of the last thirty two years, James, they've had Democratic governors. That ain't a red state. It's a purple state, but it ain't a red state. Um, twenty eight of the last thirty two. Yep. Yep. Wow. I mean that's uh, you know mm-hmm. that's 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 pretty damn good, impressive. Good, now you know they had great people like Jim Hunt and the current governor Roy Cooper. Um, you know it's a state that you know it, it is purple. It's definitely purple. It's, and and so everybody's starting to wake up to the fact that you, that, that you, I know you have conflict that your son works with Beasley, but I have no such conflict. And people are really starting to wake up. Uh, to that race, and I, I mean, I, I spoke to two posters, and I mean, posters that do a lot of polling, all right. And they both, out of the blue, said, "Man, this damn thing in North Carolina is doable, James." You kidding me? And so is the thing in Florida, by the way. Two of my mm-hmm. favorite candidates are Sherry Beasley and Val Demings. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's it's eminently doable. I don't I don't violate my conflict by saying two great candidates, do I, James? I no. want you to keep me pure. <laughs> well, as long as you say what you want, as long as you disclose to our yeah. listeners, yeah. It, it, it doesn't matter. We're an opinion show. We have That's right. People listen to us for opinions. We have However uninformed it may be sometimes. Oh, yes. James, now for the outrage of the week. Michael Kirk's front line 
PBS two-hour documentary on the evil of Donald Trump, and particularly his many Republican enablers this week, was compelling. Leaders like Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy knew he was a dangerous fraud, but went along for their own political interests, as did those second and third raiders in the White House. There were conservative profiles and courage. Politicians like Jeff Flake and Mark Sanford, who lost their uh, their seats or had to resign or had to not run again because of that. And also conservative idea people like Bill Kristol and Michael Gerson, Mona Sharon, Charlie Sykes, Pete Weiner, and then Liz Cheney, of course. But on, on Frontline, yeah, one falsely painted herself as one of those courageous few, Alyssa Farah Griffin, contrasting herself to the men around her. Now, the reality is she resigned from the White House a month after the election when all the Trump's corrupt character was well known and leaving she said what a, a great privilege it was to have served him and all their great achievements she now has a gig with the abc show the view as an anti-trump conservative that's great fine for her i'm happy for her but let's not pretend she was there when it mattered james so sometimes there are events that overcome outrage, even in these outrageous times. And I want to note the passing of former New Orleans Mayor Moon Landrieu, who died at 92. Uh, of course, he was the patriarch of a huge political family. His daughter's the United States senator. His son is the former mayor. New Orleans is now the infrastructure coordinator for the Obama administration. One of his daughters out the Biden administration. For the Biden administration, I'm sorry, the law school dean and another's a judge and on down the line. But I mean, in Moon Landrieu would be remembered for a lot of things. Being an awesome mayor is one of them. But he is the person that integrated the city of New Orleans and then did it at, at at great, great people pushing back like like crazy and calling him every kind of name you can. And that it, his his commitment to civil rights predated his time as mayor of New Orleans. He was in the sixties, he was in the state legislature and these segregation bills would go down, you know, ninety-nine to one and he'd be the one vote. So he not only is he spawned a a, a great family, but he was a great man and a great mayor, and he will be missed, but he will be remembered fondly. fondly. Boy, I'm into that, James, and he got a richly deserved, marvelous send-off and uh, the National as yeah. well as the Louisiana Papers. Sure it's yeah, a, it's yes. a reminder that history remembers what you did, and when Absolutely. you do great things as he did, he is, he is fondly remembered, and his grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren will remember him. Some people today ought to, ought to think about, uh, about those. Right. I mean, it, 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 like I say, it, it went on for, for a long time. He, he predated the time that he was mayor in the legislature, and he was a real advocate for civil rights and racial equality all of his life, as was his son and his daughter and his entire family. Yeah, a great, um, a great, a great legacy. The Landrews of Louisiana are like the Kennedys of Massachusetts and some others. Uh, just they have done wonderful, um, wonderful things to, that ought to make their state and does make right. their state, I think, very proud. Okay, James Carville, uh, we'll be back next week. Good deal. Great guest, great show. Good. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. 
Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Blinkist and the Jordan Harbinger Show, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.